Um, so with, without any further ado, I'll, I'll introduce uh, Cory Doctorow. Uh, I don't think I need to say all this information, but I will anyway. It's very impressive. Uh, science fiction novelist, blogger, and technology activist. He's the co-editor of the popular weblog Boing Boing uh, and a contributor to The Guardian, The New York Times, Publishers Weekly, Wired, and all sorts of other fine publications. Um, uh, he is formerly Director of European Affairs for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, a nonprofit civil, civil liberties group that defends freedom in technology. Uh, he's a visiting senior lecturer at the Open University in the UK. In 2007, he served as the Fulbright Chair at the Annenberg Center for Public Diplomacy at the University of Southern California. In addition, uh, he has actually been voted the, uh, the uh, blogger that most people in the distant future want to reenact. I know that for, for a fact. Um, and in addition to all of this, he's, of course, a print publisher as well with books such as For the Win, uh, his New York Times bestseller, Little Brother, his latest short story collection, Overclocked, Stories of the, of the Future Present, nonfiction as well with content, selected essays on technology, creativity, copyright, and the future of the future. That sounds like something I should be assigning in some of the classes. Um, and his most recent book is called With a Little Help, and is a very interesting experiment in print-on-demand and self-publishing that we should be looking at. My favorite book of his, though, is actually Makers, uh, which really looks at this kind of world of open-source software and hardware um, and predicts and kind of uh, creates a series of possibilities around DIY sensibilities and a maker ethic and where those things might go. Um, his title today is a little bit pregnant, why, why it's a bad idea to regulate computers the way we regulate radios, guns, uranium, and other special purpose tools. Without further ado, I give you Cory Doctorow. Thank you all very much, and thank you for bringing me out here. Um, if, I, if I move to the chair partway through, it's, uh, it's not any formal signal. I've just had hip surgery, and I'm, I'm still recovering, so standing after a while might get a little tiring for me. Um, so today, uh, I'm going to talk to you about regulation, and I want to start by asking rhetorically what all of these things have in common. Uh, first, uh, Viacom demands that Google crack the artificial intelligence barrier and invent a machine intelligence that can detect copyrighted movies as soon as they're uploaded to YouTube and remove them immediately. Second, the CRTC demands that mobile phones be designed in such a way that they can't be deliberately or accidentally modified to interfere with air traffic control signals or emergency radio. Third, a southern state outlaws sex toys. Fourth, the US, Department, the U.S. government outlaws devices that can convert a semi-automatic gun to an automatic gun. Fifth, a health agency uh, prohibits manufacturing superbugs without the appropriate safeguards. Uh, next, a patent holder demands that certain mechanisms be produced under his license or not at all. Next, an intelligence service demands that an ISP, an internet service provider, prevent child porn or terrorist plots from traversing its networks. And then finally, a mobile phone company wants to stop you from taking your subsidized phone to another carrier. But the thing that all of those things have in common is that they're all examples from today or from the near future of regulating general purpose computers. So talking about regulation, I'll, I'll start with a few basics. We regulate, obviously, to attain some end. For example, we might create a series of regulations 
uh, around the idea of preventing people from coming to physical harm. Uh, there are two ways that we can regulate. The first one, if we were talking about copyright, we'd call it prior restraint. And that is to say, uh, we, would, we would say there are certain classes of objects you're not allowed to own, or that, uh, or that if you are allowed to own them, you're only allowed to own them under certain circumstances. So we might say you can only get a gun license under a certain circumstance, and certain guns are prohibited altogether. Um, that's really easy. Uh, but what we don't say in the realm of regulating people from coming to physical harm, we don't say all objects that might cause harm are restricted or prohibited. And there's at least two reasons that this would be impractical. Uh, the first is that the regulatory cost would be very, very high. Um, you would have to have regulators in charge of ensuring that you never put a roll of quarters in a sock or pick up a piece of gravel or a stick. Um, and you'd have to have people who legitimately want to own a length of rope or a crowbar or a bottle of bleach going through all sorts of hoops just to accomplish the normal everyday tasks that, by which they live their lives. Um, and, and even if you did go ahead and pass the regulation and throw all those resources into regulating uh, all those things that might bring someone to physical harm, it would still fail at its stated goal of, of preventing physical harm as we go along. And that's because any bad person who genuinely wants to hurt someone else, no matter how much regulation you have, still wouldn't find it hard to, to locate an unregulated dangerous object. Um, likewise, no amount of regulation would prevent someone who is in legitimate possession of a dangerous object like a ladder or a piece of string from leaving it where it might uh, uh, trip someone or fall over on someone. So that sort of harm we don't regulate that harm that arises from general purpose objects. We don't regulate uh, through this prior restraint. Instead, we regulate it under the fact. Um, you're allowed to own all kinds of potentially lethal objects. You're all in possession of them today, from bandsaws to baseball bats. But if you do something naughty with them, we sometimes add new charges to the sheet, like assault with a deadly weapon or criminal negligence. This kind of after the fact regulation is really important and it's the main form of regulation that we use. It balances out those two factors. It, it balances out objects that are general purpose, uh, that are bad candidate, that, uh, I beg your pardon, I just lost my train here. This is the first time I've ever given this talk, by the way. I normally, I come up and sort of bang on about copyright and say a bunch of things I've said a million times before, but I thought for this conference I'd, I'd write something new. So if I stumble a little, please forgive me. And, uh, be comforted by the fact that the next group of people I say this to won't, won't have to listen to me fumbling. Um, so objects that are general purpose are, are bad candidates for strict regulation because on the one hand, there are lots of legitimate uses for them, and on the other, regulation probably won't stop dedicated or genuinely negligent people from doing bad things with them. Which brings us to the computer and the question of what sort of object it is. Is it one of these general purpose objects that can only be regulated after the fact or is it a special purpose object that we should regulate before it causes some harm? So historically, we've thought of computers as that special purpose object, something more like a handgun or an automobile than like a lever or a wheel or a baseball bat or a handsaw. For one thing, computers are very complicated, and we think of complicated things as being specialized, not least because the number of people who can make a complicated thing is smaller than the number of people who can make general things, right? The number of people who can make a stick is much larger than the number of people who can make uh, a very large integrated circuit. And so we think of these things as being inherently more regulatable because the number of people we have to regulate is smaller, just those experts who are capable of making it. 
we also think of computers as, as inherently regulatable because they're expensive, or at least they used to be. And expensive things are also more regulatable than cheap things because there are fewer of them, and when they change hands, it's momentous, right? So we can regulate the movement of millions of dollars because every time a million dollars or tens of millions of dollars goes from one place to another, there, it, it doesn't happen very often, and when it does, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a beacon, it shines out. You know, lots of secondary effects uh, ripple out that might alert regulators to, the, to an unregulated uh, instance of something that we hope to regulate. Um, and, and also uh, because they, they're, uh, uh, they cost a lot and it just doesn't happen very often, and so there are fewer instances in which we might ask the regulator to go to work. Um, but it turns out that the expense and bulk of computers was an extremely temporary condition, and that every year has seen this accelerating trend to computers that get cheaper, smaller, and more powerful. It also turns out that this special purpose of computers was also a passing thing. Um, once upon a time, we did build a special purpose kind of computer to act for a, a, a special purpose file server or a special purpose ballistics system or a special purpose weather predictor or a special purpose television or video game console or a screen reader for visually impaired people. These would be in some fundamental ways different kinds of devices all built from, this, from the ground up in different ways. But today, the way that we solve any one of these computational problems is by throwing general purpose computing hardware at them. We just take the regular old computing stuff that's sitting under your desk or in your pocket as your phone, and we just throw it at all these problems. We use lower powered ones to solve lower powered problems, and we just throw lots of them together to solve big problems like uh, uh, weather prediction. But what we don't do anymore is build special purpose computers. Um, and so this has become the cheapest and most efficient way to solve a computational problem. And like the man who only has a hammer, we're starting to, or only has a, a nail, we're starting to see all these things as being solvable with the com computational hammer. That we've, we've understood that almost every problem that we have has a computational dimension that is tractable with computation, whether that's education or urban planning or carbon emissions and psychology. We throw greater amounts of computation at solving various components of these problems. Now, this has had some really wonderful uh, side effects and wonderful externalities. Um, because everybody relies on that same underlying tool to solve their problem, the general purpose computer, lots and lots of people are pouring money and resource and thought into making general, computers, general purpose computers faster, more powerful, and cheaper. And then uh, a tertiary effect is that every time computers get faster, more powerful, and cheaper, the number of problems that they might be brought to bear to solve grows. And so you have a kind of uh, a positive feedback loop because as the number of problems that a computer can solve grows because they're cheaper and faster, more available and easier to use, the number of people who invest in making computers cheaper, faster, and easier to use grows. And, and this, you get this virtuous circle where computers just keep getting faster, easier, and cheaper. But it's not just computers, of course. It's also networks. Um, networks used to be special purpose, too. We used to have separate parallel infrastructure for, say, cable television, um, emergency services. Uh, we even had a specialized network, you may remember, for sending low-resolution black and white bitmaps that we called fax machines. Right? We had an entire parallel set of infrastructure just for this one tiny purpose. It's, it's like having a special fork for eating fish, right? It's one of those things that seems like a, a kind of appendix from a, a gentler era before we figured out that you can eat everything with the same fork. Um, and, you know, 
this eat everything with the same fork message, this has been something that the, the net heads have been telling the bell heads, that is to say the, the computerized networking people have been telling the circuit switch telephone people for a long time that, that all of these things that we do with networks that we build parallel infrastructure for, they're actually just applications for the internet, right? We don't need a telemetry network and a remote surgery network and an emergency services network, a television network and a phone network. We just need one single protean network and we run all these things on top of it and we call that network the internet. And, and this has had that same positive feedback loop, this general purpose network that has been at play in the general purpose computer. As the number of people who use the general purpose network to solve their problem grows, the number of people who benefit from making those networks cheaper grows, the amount of investment involved in those networks in that network gets, uh, get, goes up as well as the amount of thought put into finding ways to make it cheaper. And as it gets cheaper, easier, and more widespread, the number of people who go, wait a second, I know how I can solve my problem with that network goes up too. So you, you have these two important general purpose technologies, general purpose computers and general purpose networks that become more general purpose by the day and cheaper and more widespread by the day. And, and that means that in the realm of regulation, think these two things that we used to think of as being almost the epitome of specialized, expensive, rare, uh, and, and inherently regulatable expert technologies are becoming more and more like sticks and stones and becoming less and less good, good candidates for that kind of prior restraint regulation. So let me give you an example that unless you're involved in electronics, you probably haven't given much thought to, and that's the radio. Um, up until, until recently, every radio built took its radiating characteristics and its receiving characteristics from physical limitations in the materials used in its hardware. Specifically, we used crystals that vibrated at certain rates to determine whether or not a radio could, could transmit at a certain frequency and could receive at certain frequencies. And those were, those were fairly inherent limits to the radio. And what it, what it importantly meant was that you couldn't whisper new instructions to a radio that was intended to do one thing and have it jump off and do something entirely different. Your, your cell phone was never going to become an air traffic control radio inadvertently by you telling it to do the wrong things, provided it had, it was, it, its characteristics were analog. But what we've built, what we've, what we've established over the last several years and increasingly started to use in regular consumer applications are what are called software-defined radios that take their characteristics on the one hand from some limitations in their hardware. They, they have uh, analog to digital and digital, digital to analog converters that run at a certain rate, but whose overall characteristics are defined by software. Which program you're running on your radio determines whether or not it's a Wi-Fi access point, whether it's a, uh, a baby monitor, whether it's an air traffic control system, whether it's a 3G phone or a, a GPRS handset, or any of the other radio applications in between, only limited by the speed, certain speed characteristics of some of the, the hardware connected to it. And that's a really important sea change, although it may not seem like it at the start, because what we used to do in the regulatory realm is the CRTC or the FCC or in, in the UK where I live, Ofcom, would look at your radiating box and they would go, well, you know, we want to make sure that this doesn't make airplanes crash into each other in the sky. So we're going to ensure that there's nothing in this 
that is likely to turn it into something that blasts radio noise into air traffic control frequencies. We're going to make sure that this isn't something that inadvertently starts interfering with ambulance dispatch. And, and more, you know, more, more, more uh, uh, pedestrianly, we, we're going to make sure that it doesn't inadvertently you know, clobber your neighbor's television signal or clobber your baby monitor or any of those other things. And that was possible when you were talking about what kind of hardware you were going to stick in the box, right? That was, that was pretty inherently regulatable. It isn't to say that a bad guy couldn't build their own air traffic control radio jammer with off-the-shelf computer components. But what you could do was you could ensure that this device over here that you bought over at Canadian Tire didn't merely require a firmware refresh to turn it into something that might cause untold mischief. So what happened when software-defined radios came along is that we started to look for a way to regulate them too in the model that we had for physically defined radios, for, for analog radios. And so back when the first software-defined radios were being used in consumer applications, the American radio regulator, the FCC, put out a, a, a call for proposals on the question of whether or not we should be forcing people who, who um, build software-defined radios connected to general-purpose computers, whether they should fit those computers with some sort of governor that would prevent them from running programs that would cause the radio to make mischief. Right? And that was a kind of a watershed moment in the history of radio because it was the first time that radio started to enter the same regulatory realm that copyright had been in. Because for about 10 years before that radio regulators started talking about this, people who were involved in copyright had noticed that computers were very good at copying works. And um, they wanted to figure out how they could make computers worse at copying some works. And really, this, this has got a very old history, really the earliest days of uh, consumer packaged software, you know, back when you used to be able to go into a store and there would be shelves lined with software products. Ever since those days, people have been trying to figure out how to make software harder to copy in some context, right? Easy to copy onto the, mass, onto the disks that you sell in stores, easy to copy maybe to your hard drive once, but hard to copy from your hard drive to someone else's hard drive. And they've met with pretty much total non-success, right? It, it must be said that this has is, is ended up being largely a, a fool's errand, but, but it's, it hasn't stopped anyone from trying. And it's that confluence of this fool's errand in software and the, uh, the fool's errand in other kinds of copyrightable works and the fool's errand in other realms that I really want to talk to you about today, about what happens when we start bringing the failed regulatory model that has really not gotten us anywhere in copyright and try to make it work in other realms too and what consequences that has for the rest of us. So today, for example, we have DVDs uh, that theoretically don't allow you to copy them to your computer or streaming video that theoretically you can watch on the internet but can't save off to your hard drive as it's coming to you. In fact, in streaming is really interesting because in some technical sense, there's no such thing as a stream, right? A stream is just a download. Uh, in order for there to be uh, a, down, uh, a, a way to look at a video over the internet without a copy of it being made on your computer, the internet would literally have to be a series of tubes and mirrors, right? I mean, they would literally have to be just shining the light on your computer. The way that you show someone a video over the internet is by transmitting a copy of it to their computer of all the, the zeros and ones. And what we say when we, when we say, oh, I've sent you a stream and not a download is, I've sent you the file and I expect that the software on the other end will throw it away when you're done watching it. Um, that expectation has not been a very good one, and, and I'll give you an example of, of how that has uh, failed. So 
Um, in, the, in the United Kingdom where I live, we have a public broadcaster called the BBC, which is much like the CBC uh, in that it takes a lot of public funding. It has a slightly different model in how it's funded, but by and large, it exists to serve the public. It takes money from the public. And they decided that it would be in the public interest if you could watch BBC shows over the internet which sounds like it's in the public interest to me. Um, but rather than just put up a, an archive of files or a slick iTunes-style way of browsing those files, um, they decided that they would come up with their own thing called the iPlayer. And the iPlayer incorporates a lot of really cool functionality as, a, as an iTunes-style console to look at what's on the, uh, on, the, on, on the BBC's website or on the BBC's file servers. But it also has a bunch of strange characteristics, like it supposedly doesn't let you save these files, they, they, or if they do save them, it saves them to an encrypted format that you're not supposed to be able to look at without permission. And that's because, for one reason or another, the BBC only wants you to be able to look at those files for 30 days. Um, and they only want you to be able to download them for the first seven days after the program airs, giving those files a maximum life on your computer of 37 days. They kind of want to preserve the ability to sell you a DVD and lots of other things. And we can talk later about whether or not those are legitimate goals. But one thing that is unequivocally true is that if the goal of the iPlayer is to stop people from making unencrypted copies of the programming the BBC airs and putting them on the internet for other people to look at without necessarily paying the license fee, is it's completely failed in that goal. Every program in the iPlayer ends up on the internet in file sharing networks in unencrypted formats that are easy to get hold of and just in, in interfaces that are as easy and convenient to use as the one that the BBC offers through the iPlayer. And they end up in lots of different ways, right? Either someone saves the, um, saves the stream, right, because they just run a streaming program that doesn't obey the delete this file when you're finished downloading it instruction. Or, um, you know, the BBC has this funny relationship with its, its programs because on the one hand, they make them available on the internet in this restricted format, but on the other hand, they're required by law to transmit them to every place in Britain. They're actually engineers who go around and make sure there's no place in Britain they don't transmit it to in an unencrypted format. So it's, it's being blasted out over the air in a digital unencrypted format, and people just grab that one, right? They, they, it doesn't really matter to the producers of Doctor Who if the copy of Doctor Who that's circulating on the internet and maybe displacing sales of their DVD originated on the iPlayer or originated over the air, it's, it's the program they care about, not, not which box it was extracted from before being popped on the internet. Um, or they wait till the DVD comes out and they rip it from that. So um, as with DVDs, the, even the most technically unsophisticated people can learn how to trivially defeat all the, the, the technology that sits between them and making unrestricted copies of DVDs. Either they, they go to Google and they type in, you know, DVD namespace BitTorrent and they find a copy to download, or they, 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 you know, hear someone whisper the word handbrake and think, handbrake, maybe that's a program I can use to rip my DVDs, and they find out that it is and that it's just sort of one click and away you go. Um, and so at, at, at that point, all of the technology that's been brought to bear to solve this problem has completely failed to solve the problem. It, it isn't making copying any harder, and it isn't, importantly, it isn't changing the characteristics of what we can do with general purpose computers. Right? Anyone who wants to do something naughty with a general purpose computer can do it, even though there are a bunch of regulatory and quasi-regulatory mechanisms in place, both in the form of software and in the form of law. Because of yours, of course, downloading a, a movie from uh, using Google and BitTorrent 
is unlawful, and in many places you can get fined, or even now some people have gone to jail over this sort of thing. Um, and of course, making some of this software is illegal, and hosting the download service is, Ill is illegal, and in some cases, the operating system vendors themselves are embodying some of this control stuff right in the operating system, and even now in some of the hardware, and nevertheless, with all of that regulation uh, at the hardware and the software layer and the operating system layer and in the legal layer, we're still not successfully regulating computers. And that's going to be important later when we talk about some of the things we'd hope people wouldn't be able to do with computers, like making superbugs. Um, and so general purpose networks are, are also facing this kind of fight. Uh, it's not just the general purpose computer. So ISPs are being told all over the world that they should act as copyright police and that they should block certain bad sites. Uh, in the UK, we, we've, we've had this now passed as secondary legislation in our Digital Economy Act. There's a bill up before the um, American legislature right now called COECA that makes the same provision. Uh, weirdly enough, the, um, the, the heads of the Authors Guild in DC just wrote an essay in support of this bill making it illegal for certain websites to be accessed in, in, um, in, in the US on the basis that Shakespeare wouldn't have been able to survive today because our copyright laws are too weak, ignoring, uh, oddly enough, that Shakespeare wrote before copyright laws were invented and that most of the works that he wrote would be illegal under today's copyright law because they borrowed from his contemporaries. But that's another speech. Um, but ISPs are being told that the general purpose network should be one in which anyone can communicate anything except for certain things. Um, and anyone that wants to be a pirate has gotten around these censor blocks. And it's not just, just um, uh, don't, don't allow certain bad websites that have copyright infringing material that ISPs are being told to block. In many jurisdictions, ISPs are being told to block things that are much less ambiguously bad, like child porn, uh, or, or much more, much, the, the ambiguity in their badness is, is, uh, is, is, is much less. Uh, and yet, it's not particularly effective. Even in, in um, Australia, where they just rolled out one of these child porn filters across the nation, the supplier of the child porn filter themselves said, Anyone who wants to look at child porn will not be challenged by this in the least. The primary effect of this filter will be to stop you accidentally stumbling on child porn, which is a completely separate problem and not really what Australians were sold on. And really not the thing when I think of the, the horrors of child porn, which as the father of a three-year-old, I really do think of as horrific. I don't think of the primary horror of child porn being that people sometimes see it by accident. I mean, that's bad. and I sort of prefer in an ideal world that that not happen. But it's not the primary consequence that we're hoping to regulate against. Um, and it's not just the networks themselves, but the endpoints on the networks that are being regulated. For example, uh, Viacom, I, I alluded to this earlier at the start of the talk, Viacom has sued Google uh, over its YouTube service and said that Google has an obligation to ensure that the material that shows up on Google doesn't infringe anyone's copyright. Uh, and particularly doesn't infringe Viacom's copyright, and that the current regulatory framework that says if someone's infringed your copyright on the internet, you tell them, and then they're obliged to remove that infringing material, isn't enough. That Google should assume the, 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 um, the, the responsibility of knowing what all the copyrighted works are, and if they see one being attempted to be uploaded to YouTube, they should interdict it before it goes live. And Viacom has argued somewhat straight-facedly, that this should be automatable, that somewhere out there in, in the bowels of Google, there is an artificial intelligence capable of making these fine-grained distinctions that sometimes require you know, fully impaneled Supreme Courts to really fully appreciate. Um, and, that, and Google just hasn't rolled it out 
because YouTube, which actually, by all accounts, loses something like a million dollars a day, uh, is so profitable to them that they would keep such a, an invention under wraps uh, and, and uh, not allow it to kind of go out there be, uh, and, and, uh, and, and police YouTube on Viacom's behalf. But you know, more importantly, this is this general principle that anyone who hosts material from the general public should have the obligation to ensure it doesn't violate some law before it goes live would essentially prevent all the things that we do with hosting, right? It would, it would make Twitter disappear because, of course, Twitter couldn't possibly ensure that you know, the billions of tweets that they get don't infringe on anyone's rights, don't, don't infringe on a copyright or commit a, a, a libel or, or, or any of those other things, violate a state secret. Um, certainly no message board could survive under that regime, uh, no hosting service like YouTube could, but also no hosting service like the university which allows students to upload their papers could survive if the only way you could get a paper into the hosting service was to submit it to the university's council first so that they could review it and ensure it didn't infringe on anyone's rights. And if there was any doubt, ask you to remove anything that might infringe. Um, so tellingly, people worried about radio and copyright have come to this same point in their regulatory quest. Uh, they want to design computers from the ground up that have this inbuilt facility uh, to run programs that their users can't control or inspect and that are designed to work even when the user doesn't want them to. So this is basically that the answer that everyone's arrived at is we should have things like digital rights management technology or uh, in other cases um, uh, trusted computing technologies that would monitor, that would run programs that would monitor what was happening in the system and if the wrong thing was happening in the system would intervene and stop it. And that these programs should be able to run in a way that users can't stop uh, that users can't inspect, so in order to subvert them, and that um, should run even when the owner of the computer doesn't believe that it's in their interest for that software to be running. Uh, so for example, in the radio example, um, something that truly prevented you from modifying your radio from doing A into doing B if B is naughty would have to work even if you wanted it not to work, right? It would have to, it would have to happen somewhere in, the, in a redesigned bowel of that computer that uh, was off limits to users, but accessible to some higher authority than the owner of the computer. Um, so there's one important problem with, with those proposals, is that they won't stop things like software-defined radios uh, from causing havoc. Unli uh, they only stop the licensed software-defined radios from doing bad things. And building an unlicensed software-defined radio is easy for all those reasons I've enumerated. The components that go into a software-defined radio are commodity electronics. And it's not in the realm of the plausible to believe that we'll figure out a way to regulate all the analog to digital converters and all the digital to analog converters and all the general purpose computers to which we might connect them. For one thing, um, building your own analog to digital converter is a, um, is a high school science fair project, right? So if you can build one of these things as a high school science fair, it's not really plausible to think that no one will be able to make them uh, even after we regulate them. And since the bad things that might arise from software-defined radios being used badly. I mean, as someone who flies a lot, I'd prefer that they not interfere with air traffic frequencies. As someone who's occasionally needed an ambulance, I'd prefer that they not interfere with emergency frequencies. And as someone who sometimes turns on the television, I'd prefer them not to interfere with my TV. So since uh, it won't be effective against bad guys, and since it also won't be effective against klutzes, right, people who just get it wrong when they're building one for a good purpose, um, I think that we should agree that, that this actually isn't the right way to keep software-defined radios from making havoc. Likewise, 
uh, entertainment companies now, de now demand that mobile phone companies, games console companies, and operating system companies design their systems to lock out the user when their movies or music are playing to prevent users from capturing their product uh, back to the hard drive in a form that can be freely copied and, sh and used. And what's important is that they've found a number of willing partners in this quest to restrict the way that general purpose computers work. For example, console companies are all too happy to add a facility that restricts the way that software runs on their, on their platforms because their business model is fundamentally charging companies for the right to ship product that runs on their platform. You know, the, the Xbox business model is to sell an Xbox below what it costs to manufacture and then make up the difference by charging software publishers for the right to put software on the Xbox. So as a, an externality of that business model decision, you already have this capability built in to control what kind of programs can run and what they can do when they're on the, when they're on the platform, and that is, is used and taken advantage of by the entertainment companies as well. Um, mobile phone companies are all too happy to build components of their phone that are off limits to user-modifiable software that users can't touch, and the reason they want to do that is they're all hooked on the subsidy phone model where they, they give you a free phone and then build in several multiples of its cost to the life of your contract and, and reckon on you not being able to leave the contract and go to a competitor with your phone unlocked and, and ready to use on a, on a competitor's network. And then, you know, uh, general purpose computer companies and, and uh, um, uh, PC companies like Apple play all sides of the lockdown game. Uh, they want to stop independent software publishers from selling apps for tablets and phones without a 30% cut going to Apple, and so they lock those so that only Apple-approved software can run on it. Uh, and at the, the same time, they want to lock video and audiobooks and other media to their proprietary software so that if you decide after many years of being an Apple customer that you want to go and be uh, a customer of some uh, alternative ecosystem, that you have to leave your video and audio be audiobooks behind to go there because it's all locked to that platform or to other platforms that have licensed their anti-copying technology. But like the BBC, they've discovered that none of this stuff actually achieves its stated goal. All phones can be unlocked, all contents can be pirated, and all tablets can be jailbroken. Um, but the reluctance to face up to this, the reluctance to kind of look for another way to regulate or another way to, to conduct your commercial affairs um, means that increasingly desperate measures are being taken to put this uh, to put this control technology more deeply into our technology. You know, it's sort of like, well, that didn't work. Let's see if, if we do it harder, if it'll work next time. This isn't to say that designing uh, devices to attack their owners isn't without consequences. It's, it's, it's not merely that it doesn't work. It actually has a negative consequence in addition to it. Indeed, once you start calling this what it is, a computer that's designed to betray its owner's interests, it becomes immediately obvious why we shouldn't do it. It doesn't matter if you're a movie pirate, and it doesn't matter if you're a hack radio hacker. All the negative effects of this can come to bear on you. What matters is that applying prior restraint regulation to general purpose PCs and the networks that they use um, mean that, uh, I beg your pardon, I've just lost my train again. That's that beta testing the talk thing. Um, uh, gosh, I really did lose my place here. Um, what matters is that applying prior restraint regulation to general purpose PCs means that devices all around you are increasingly running on hardware that is designed with this facility on, in mind and is increasingly running operating systems that are likewise so designed. 
We are adding the legal and technical infrastructure to arbitrarily prevent code from running on computers or to covertly run software that, on that computer, to eavesdrop on all network communications, to block certain websites and services, and to force websites to remove content from the internet on an ever greater set of nebulously defined pretenses with ever greater penalties for a failure to act. Um, for example, networks are being told that they must interdict uh, um, or not host terrorist communications, indecent material, libelous material, or of course, uh, and most recently in the news, illegally leaked material. As we've seen, none of this is particularly effective at stopping bad or prohibited stuff from happening, but it does provide a set of easy tools for censors and authoritarians. In the UK, for example, our strict libel laws have been used to pursue science writers who make such outrageous claims as AIDS can't be cured with vitamins, or chiropractors won't cure your cancer by holding their hands over you. Um, the Church of Scientology has made a, a science, really, probably the only science they can, that, that can be attributed to them, <laughs> a, a science of going after their critics using copyright claims. So uh, making copyright claims that are just plausible enough to get anything critical of them removed from websites. Basically, these rules and systems have the side effect of magnifying the advantage of the powerful and the unscrupulous at the expense of the powerless and the honest. The US is, in fact, now expanding its repertoire of tactics in the service of enforcing policy on general purpose networks. They now claim the right to confiscate .com and .net domains that offend it with little or no due process. And just this month, this resulted in 80,000 websites being seized and in error and uh, having an erroneous notice being put up by the Department of Homeland Security saying that this website had formerly hosted child pornography, and if you're visiting it, you've been trafficking in child pornography, and they're going to get you. Now, this isn't going to get uh, uh, better, and it's not going to go away. It's, in fact, going to become more of a problem because the contradictions causing this problem are only going to get worse. Um, take 3D printers. 3D printers uh, establish a whole new set of actors who want to regulate general purpose computers. Um, that is, uh, uh, so, so first let me just say briefly what a 3D printer is, because not everyone knows. Uh, for those of you who already know, I apologize for covering some uh, tired ground. A 3D printer is a way of, of, um, of having a computer start with a digital file and turn that digital file for a 3D object into a physical object. So most of them used to work uh, by removing stuff from a block of, of, of metal or plastic or wood. You'd have a computer-controlled mill that would take away stuff to make a shape. But increasingly, they add stuff. So they, they, you have a kind of um, inkjet printer head, you can imagine, that runs back and forth, side to side, and up and down. And it will lay a layer of, of small, say, epoxy beads down on the, on the surface, and then fuse them with a laser, and then lift itself up and lay a new layer of epoxy beads down and fuse them with a laser. And it's not just epoxy. 3D printers now print in, in precious metals. They print in titanium. They print in glass. They print in ceramic. They print in sugar and mashed potatoes. So who'd be upset by that? Well, in Alabama, it's illegal to make or sell or possess a sex toy, right? Well, that's moderately regulatable in today's environment. But what I want to know is what happens when a magistrate in Alabama in some local court decides that someone like Brie Pettis, who's a 3D printer innovator who lives in New York and who's got a, a website where you can upload any 3D plan for any 3D object and plug it into your printer and make it, is in essence trafficking sex toys into this guy's um, uh, jurisdiction by making them available over the internet where a 3D printer might output them. 
But it's not just kind of people who we might object to because they sound like they're silly and backwards. There's lots of legitimate people who might want to stop a 3D object from being instantiated, or things that somewhere sit somewhere between legitimate and debatable. Um, there are indigenous people who prohibit the reproduction of certain sacred symbols and artifacts. Um, there's gun regulators who, for reasons that I think we, most of us would agree are pretty good ones, don't want you to convert your semi-automatic to full auto. Um, and then there's, there's kind of weird cases from very deep-pocketed uh, 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 noted litigators like Mattel who might say, well, you know, uh, whatever you want to do with your Barbie is cool with us, but we draw the line at uploading anatomically correct torsos that the heads and legs fit in to the 3D printing website so that any kid can 3D print an anatomically correct or worryingly an anatomically incorrect torso. <laughs> so for reasons that are good and bad, there are a lot of, of reasons to worry about the output of 3D printers, especially as they expand the repertoire of materials and resolution at which they print. Um, and right behind 3D printers are a whole new range of, of so-called printers. It's kind of um, telling that we haven't yet figured out what to call these things apart from printer, even though they're, they're doing nothing that resembles printing. Um, it's, it's kind of like the horseless carriage moment. We'll probably know what these things are really for when we stop calling them printers. But I'll keep calling them printers for now. Um, so we have uh, uh, already in use in, in labs and increasingly being commercialized um, uh, bioprinters that can print organisms and parts of organisms, as well as microscale compounds that include patented pharmaceuticals and controlled hallucinogens or even superbugs. Um, now, there isn't a bioscientist in the world who's a, who doesn't dream of having a really capable bioprinter in their lab. And once they're cheap and widely available, it will make that kind of bioadventurism or bioinnovation available to a much wider pool of people in the same way that, say, desktop publishing made graphic design available to a much wider pool of people. And on the one hand, we'll get some of the positive effects that we got with desktop publishing, like a whole bunch of people who invented a whole bunch of cool things. On the other hand, we're going to get those negative effects, too, of a whole bunch of people who discovered that the inner designer yearning to breathe free actually should stay inside. Um, <laughs> now, that's a lot less worrying when all that emerges is a bad and ill-conceived poster for your band than what emerges is a, a compound that someone might ingest or, indeed, a living organism. But here's the thing. The general purpose computer is already everywhere. It's in your car. It's in your oven. It's in your thermostat. It's in your phone. Soon enough, it'll be in your clothes. And even under your skin, we're increasingly seeing assistive devices that are combined with general purpose computers that have the power to be better than the organic, the organic uh, capacities that they replace. For example, imagine a hearing aid with a million-hour buffer that can also interface with your home stereo and phone. So these things are going to be not just outside of our bodies, but increasingly inside our bodies. Designing general-purpose computers that sneak around their owners' backs is a terrible idea. We've already seen what happens when you add just a little bit of control to networks and computers. Most recently, we saw Iran and Egypt's secret police mining Facebook to figure out whom to arrest. Virus writers and identity thieves have already figured out that when there's technology that is supposed to prevent copying running on a computer that prevents certain programs from being seen or modified by users, that those are the programs that you want to infect with your viruses because they also can't be seen by the users of the computer. Once we create the facility to lawfully intercept terrorist communications or to speedily take down copyright infringement or to interdict pirate software or to remotely prevent bad radios from running, we, create the, we build the tools by which tyrants, crooks, snoops, and jerks will spy on and control us, even if for the best of reasons. 
For example, think of um, building in the facility to force users to update the security software on their device when we, when we found out that it's been compromised. And imagine what happens if that facility itself becomes compromised and someone who's got malicious intent can force an update to all the devices in the field that users can't control. Building a general purpose PC that's just a little bit locked down is like finding a woman who's just a little bit pregnant. Once the facility can be used for a legitimate purpose, it can also be used for an illegitimate purpose. Indeed, that's the problem that we started with in the first place. But here's the other thing. There are plenty of bad things that general purpose computers can do. I don't want my airplane's air traffic control signals being interfered with. I don't want child porn to circulate. I don't want superbugs being printed on desktop printers, uh, but on the desktop printers of weird apocalyptic nutcases or even absent-minded sloppy fools. But regulating the general purpose PC and the general purpose network won't actually prevent these things from happening. The general purpose PC and the general purpose network are commodities, and there will always be unhobbled versions that can be had, which means that only good, honest people will have a hard time laying hands on them, and only the good that they can, and, and only, and, and they will therefore be locked out of the good that these devices can produce. At the start of this talk, I talked about why we don't regulate baseball bats, but regulating a general purpose computer is even more fundamental than regulating a baseball bat. It's like regulating a wheel. We all use them. And though they can do much harm, it would be absurd totalitarianism to turn them into controlled substances. Which brings me to my conclusion. We do need to come up with effective solutions to the real problems of the collapse of prior restraint regulation models before the planes start falling out of the sky and whatnot. The first step to doing this is to stop pretending that we can make the PC just a little bit pregnant. The way that we fix these problems is by coming up with after-the-fact solutions that actually mitigate and reduce harm. So when the FCC proposed that, they, um, that, that uh, uh, locked computing should be used in connection with software-defined radios, I went to some of the radio engineers I knew and asked them what they thought we should do. And they said, well, I can totally see why this would be a nightmare, because I'm a radio engineer and I, it's in my interest not to have radios all be clobbered by people running bad software but I really don't think trusted computing will work, what could we do? And one solution that was proposed to me by a guy named um, Andrew Huang, who calls himself Bunny Wang, He's, he wrote a book called Hacking the Xbox, and then uh, he was the guy who, who hacked the original Xbox, and then he, um, he's since gone on to found a very interesting company called Chumbi that makes little uh, special purpose computers that you can sit on your desk. And, and Bunny said, well, software-defined radios uh, are really interesting in that they're, they're pretty good at figuring out what other software-defined radios around them are doing because, for example, they can tune in different frequencies. And since we're all going to have lots of software-defined radio devices around us in our pockets and our laptops and so on, one of the things that people of goodwill could do was try to find radios that are doing bad things, either doing bad things because someone loaded the wrong code on them by accident or doing bad things because someone loaded the wrong code on them by purpo on purpose, or doing bad things because their shields have been dislodged, or any of the other things that might cause a radio to misbehave. And that information could be used to geographically triangulate on the bad radios, and then that information could be passed on to regulators or even allow you to go knock on your neighbor's door and say, there's something wrong with your Wi-Fi access point. Unlike adding trusted computing, 
to, uh, to radio devices, this would actually work. It would actually allow us to solve this problem. It would allow regulators and cops to find bad guys. It would allow neighbors to fine-tune each other's equipment. It would actually make the world safer. Um, another example of a solution that's been proposed by people who know what they're talking about for solving the general purpose computing pro problem is much closer to home, I think, for a lot of us, or at least more visceral, which is what the German survivors of, um, of pedophiles have proposed as a solution to child porn, as Germany considered its own child porn censorship wall. And they said, actually, this won't work. And what we really want to do is instead of interdicting uh, these websites at the border, we want you to take all those resources and use them to find the people who operate the websites and then find the people who made the videos and arrest them. And we think that right now, keeping this stuff out of the public eye reduces the pressure to arresting people, especially, for example, sex tourists who go abroad to commit crimes that are then show up as videos that we get in Germany. And we think that the important thing about child porn isn't just the watching of it, but the really bad thing about it is the making of it. And that's what we'd like you to emphasize in your strategy for mitigating the harms of child porn. And again, this doesn't solve the whole problem, but the sensor wall problem doesn't solve any of it, whereas this one actually might have a measurable effect on the production of child porn and the harm that arises to children in the production of child porn. We need this kind of thinking because A, it will work, and B, without solutions, we end up with this regulatory vacuum that will be filled by people who reflexively add spyware and censorship and lockdown because at least we're doing something. So librarians and archivists and people involved in information science aren't just fighting over copyright. This fight is actually the leading edge of a series of regulatory battles that are going to take us through this century and that have at stake whether or not the infrastructure of the information society is going to have embedded in it control surveillance technologies that will do nothing to mitigate harm, but will in fact put us all at har at, at, in harm's way. So with that, I'll take your questions, and I'm going to sit down.